we ended up spending nine nights at Children's Hospital in Boston with teams of different people coming in, trying to figure out how to deal with this thing and how to solve it. And that made me step back and say, all right, Dennis, the heck you doing here? Working in these 20 hour days, you got a young family, life is pressured and can be short. And so that has impacted my life over spent, but also at that particular point in time, I got this failed startup. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seek, Go, Create. This is where we challenge traditional notions of success and explore inspiring stories of transformation. And we dig down in places like leadership, business, and ministry. Definitely going to be doing a good dive into business today, but probably tying all that together. I'm your host, Tim Winders. I'm an executive coach and I love getting to do what I do, which is ask questions and just talk to really cool people. we got a great guest today. Our guest is Dennis Kelly. He is the CEO of Postalytics, which is a dynamic software company in a very interesting industry specializing in direct mail automation. I'm excited to talk about that. He's got over 30 years of experience in starting and growing technology ventures. He's got a wealth of knowledge to share. Real quick, Postalytics empowers marketers to do more with less time offering streamlined production, seamless integration in the marketing tech stack, and real-time analytics for direct mail campaigns, which I like to say I consider direct mail an old-school business, so it looks like they're marrying some old-school stuff with some new tech, which I love it. Dennis, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here today. Excited to speak with the Seek, Go, Create audience. Yeah, I'm glad we're chatting now and going to have fun, but Let's do this before we get started. We've just bumped into each other. And I say, Dennis, what do you do? What do you tell people when they ask you what you do? That's an interesting question. And I think that when you live the long life, like I have, you, you wear a lot of different hats. And so I would currently say what I do is uh, I'm, I try to be the best husband and father and friend I can be. And at the same time, try to get startup companies off the ground and flourishing. And sometimes the goals are in odds with each other and there's some time great challenges in our lives. But I think by eliminating everything else, I'm not a good golfer. I used to fish. I can't fish anymore. I got to focus on these things. So that's what I really try to focus. I've always said, I think you and I may be in a similar age bracket, I believe. And I've been telling people recently that part of life is just coming to the realization of the things you're either not good at or don't want to do or don't want to do again. And I'm the same way with golf. We may lose a good portion of the audience right here. I lived in a golf course community for a while, thought, you know what, I'm semi-retired. I'm going to play golf. Yeah, I don't I do not do any golf anymore. So it sounds like you came to that also. No, I, I, unfortunately, I still struggle and try to squeeze it around here and there when I can and do that very poorly. So the thrill of the chase that's still there for me, the execution and results, not there. So you're not going to join the senior tour. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Not any time in the near future, for sure. <laughs> it's a tough thing, really, though. The, you mentioned something. I, I've done this pendulum swing, too, over the past maybe 10, 15 years as we've gone through a lot of changes with our businesses and companies. I, I for a while, dropped all business items from the 
what do you do kind of conversation. I would say, I'm a husband, I'm a father, child of God. I would use just things that would be more, I don't know, sound better. And I'm starting to creep back in and use things like I, I have this big umbrella of executive coach. And so I, I do think it speaks to the balance that's challenging. Your startup environments, that's a hard charging environment. That's not a established company. You work eight hours a day, you go home. Startup's high energy. And it sounds like you're still in that role, correct? I am. And PostLix is my sixth startup. So I've been doing this now for quite a while. And you're right. It, it's not a just nine to five kind of job. That being said, you, you learn over time that it's also not just the spring. It, and a startup is really a marathon. And you need to think about how you pace yourself in a marathon. And in a marathon, there are little sprints where the, the best runners are, are really pushing it and, and they're trying to make uh, a move against the field for a particular amount of time for various reasons. Uh, but at the end of the day, they got to finish. And you learn when you do these startups that you can, if you go through an all out sprint for a period of time, you end up pretty burnt out and makes it hard to execute over the long haul. The metaphor that I try to think of now is, is you're a top marathon runner and you're running against other top marathon runners and a lot of strategy involved in how much energy you exert at any given point in time. So if someone's been involved with six startups, have you always had that mindset you just shared of the marathon or has this evolved over time? Go back a little bit and what have you learned? What have you uh, gained your wisdom from all these six startups? And I know that's a big question, but give us a few items that you've uh, gleaned from that. Yeah, sure. Certainly, I have not always had this perspective on on startup life. I started really in my 20s and, and did a bunch of startups in my 20s and 30s. And in those years, I was much more a spreader and I was pushing midnight, 2 a.m. in the morning, work days on a regular basis, trying to raise a young family and try to do everything. And, and uh, it, it's just not sustainable. It's not a sustainable approach. And I guess when you're really young, you can do that for a little bit. But I think time has taught that, that there will always be work tomorrow in a startup you will never, ever get to the bottom of your list of things to do. Not one. And, and so by accepting that and, and realizing that the daily process of prioritizing and reprioritizing and, and focusing on a few things that we can get done that are going to move the needle, it, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to manage through this roller coaster of emotions that happen uh, when you and a group of highly committed people are... 100% focus on, on goals. It, it's, it, there are things that happen and the, they come out of left field and you think, why did, couldn't I have foreseen that happening? And it takes you down a rat hole. And then there are days when amazing things happen and modulating the emotion of those ups and downs and thinking of this over a longer horizon, it really helps you create a mindset of continual growth 
that that doesn't allow you to necessarily get caught up in in such a, a deep sprint that you end up getting burnt out or such a deep hole emotionally that you're having a hard time breaking out of it. Right. I'm I'm curious, and this is a it anyway, it's just an interesting question. I've dealt with a lot of business, I've been around for a lot of them, worked with some myself, but were most of yours I'll use the term bootstrap. I think you know what I mean. Was it just like, you, you know, you used your funding or some close funding around it or were there outside investors? There's a follow-up question I've got to this. You think you might know where I'm headed with this, but just give in general, what were some or all of your startups as they came along? Yeah, yeah. So they've really been a variety of different types of startups. And so Postalytic is much more of a bootstrap startup that we really haven't done really anything from an outside funding standpoint, but I've had others that were, for example, right in the midst of the dot-com boom. And it was about raising a ton of venture capital money and printing as fast as you could for a period of time. And so I've done angel invested startup, venture invested startup, self-invested startup, and I've got a wide variety of perspectives. And I think generally you have to think a lot about your financing strategy and that I think you can make mistakes, particularly early, early in your career by getting seduced by the ability to go get a great big check. And different businesses require different types of capital. And so I think you need to be really thoughtful about the funding mechanisms that will work for a specific business. Yeah, so this is a real loaded question because I've had to investigate this with myself. I'm going to ask, Dennis, of all the models you've worked with and all that you have been a part of, what works best for Dennis, for his personality, for the way he functions, for the way he lives his life? Which model, I'm, I'm assuming is hopefully probably the one you're with now, but I guess as a layer to the question, give some pros and cons and why you pick one over some of the others, because people listening in need to hear this. This is very important, I think. Yes. For me at my stage of life and where I'm at, this bootstrap model works very well, at least in terms of scaling up a business to a certain point. And, and, but that being said, I'm at a point in my life where you know, the, the short-term need for cash flow is less important. And I've had resources personally to invest in this thing in order to help get it off the ground. And my situation is a little bit different than other people potentially, right? And, and so I feel very fortunate to be at this position in my life where I've raised money in different environments, seen a lot of different types of businesses worked with very highly decorated board of directors, members in different types of startups. And I think a lot of the scars in learning that I've accumulated over the years eliminate the need for some of the oversight and, and, and structure that, that a different financing mechanism would enforce on a startup, at least to a certain point. 
you know, at, you can scale these things on a bootstrap way and, and, and get them to a certain point. But at, at some point, they probably have to evolve, right? So they're either going to be a nice business that you run and, and, and enjoy running. Uh, but if you really want to scale something, the, the, the bootstrap model can take you so far, but at some point, it's going to convert into something else. Hmm. How important is it for you to be in a, I guess the question is a control situation because that's a, a bigger money question also, because obviously if you bring in other people and, and the reason I bring it up is that I'm, I, we had a lot of investors with some real estate companies heading into 08 and a lot of that did not turn out well. And so it, it did shift a little bit of my thinking. I was also involved. I was doing some consulting and coaching for businesses during that dot-com boom. And there were some things I was just scratching my head going, wow. And I, I think some people, this kind of goes back to knowing yourself and have some self-awareness. What does someone's comfort level need to be with? I'm in charge. I'm running things versus I'm running things, but there's a, a lot of other people or other people that are having some input, which goes into that funding mechanism. And I'll tell you where we're headed with this. We're going into the ability to be able to pivot and make a big change if you need to, but yet you've got handcuffs that may or may not keep you from doing that. So this is the direction we're going, just so you know. So how, how important is that control or the ability to make those decisions? Again, at, at this point of my life, uh, I enjoy having a lot of autonomy, right? And and my, myself and my partner and a few key people here can sit down and think through things and have a lot of different perspectives and, and choose the direction without having to go through a lot of process. I'm not spending a week every quarter preparing for the board meeting. And we're moving quickly, right? And making decisions on a daily basis. But again, with that being said, I think there are other stages of the business that really would be just due to the scope of the business and the scale of the opportunity. It, it probably does, it will require more structure. Right. And the quarterly board meetings and, and then board called and then dealing with the analysts of the investors, the, the junior folks that are looking for regular updates on stuff. There's a whole nother layer of management that goes into having professional investors involved in your business. And at other points in my life and other businesses, that really is what was necessary right from the beginning. And so you've got to calibrate your expectations around your ability to just make decisions and move without selling this to a broader audience and moving all the stakeholders along with you. And I'm not, it's not like my approach to business is that of a dictator where I decide everything and I tell everybody what they're going to be doing every day. I prefer a much more collaborative environment, uh, but I'd rather do that at least in the early stages of business with folks are very close to it and rely on some third parties for some thought leadership and assistance and looking at it from another angle, but really be able to, to manage those interactions and IT fit as opposed to more of a external structure. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the thing that I really love about having a conversation with someone who is, I'll use the term mature, we don't use the word older here, but we'll use the word mature, is that I think maturity is when you start realizing the environments, the areas, the businesses, the situations that you thrive in, that they, I'll use the term nourish your soul versus things like, I love where you talked about early on in your career where you were probably working 20 hour days. I did similar. I always joke with people during the nineties. I think I slept about four hours a night, maybe. And I was proud of it was the problem. I like boasted about it. And now I'm going, you know, I wish I had a few of those sleep hours back. I think part of it is just the journey that we go on, which, which I I don't want to, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I'd love to go over a little bit of your journey to get up to where we are with postalytics here, because anytime someone says they've been through six, six startups and, and I've read through, they are varying. They have a, a wide scope. So I, as, as succinct, but I, I may slow you down along the way, walk through Dennis's journey coming out of school. Sounds like you jumped right into startup world and just went from there, correct? Pretty quickly. I, I get out of college, moved to New York for my first job, which was actually with Prudential Insurance. And I was in a, a wonderful training program at Prudential Insurance. It's six months platform and moving around to different segments of their, what they call their group insurance business, which is health insurance that they were selling in there. At the time, Prudential was the largest insurance company in the world. And it was a major player in the healthcare space and really rolling out HMOs for the very first time in, in the 1980s, uh, at least on the East Coast. And so I was a part of that and, and trained on underwriting and marketing and sales, ended up in a sales office, reported to a, a wonderful leader there, former Air Force Colonel who had built a great sales office in New York. And, and then I learned how to sell. I was selling health insurance, knocking on doors, trying to build relationships. And so great lessons. Uh, I, I would tell anybody, uh, if you want to learn how to sell, go to New York and start knocking on doors. And you'll learn how to sell. And you'll learn that rejection is not personal, right? Just part of the game. And and it makes some of the like flair when you're in New York every day. So, uh, so great experience there, but big company, lots of layers of everything. And after a couple of years, I really felt like, hey, I want to get a little more control over my destiny. And a, a buddy from college and his brother were starting up a computer company up here in the Boston area. And so they needed a sales guy. So I quit my job, took a huge pay cut and jumped into this really early stage company that ended up Shifting a hundred times before I figured out what to do with it. And this was a com- computer company in what year? This is 1989. Yes. And right before the explosion of PP, and which ended up being something very important for us, there was a, a, a general shift in computing in the computing platform that occurred from these, what were called mini computers. I call them ironically named mini computers because they're the side of my desk and to, to the PC world. And when that happened, the cost footprint of selling the solution that we had at this company plummeted and our potential market loaded. 
And so by taking advantage of that ship in computing platform, this business was able to take off. And it became a, a fundamental reason why it had explosive growth. And we had a, a great outcome for that first startup that I was involved in just right place, right time. And we were able to take advantage of that major shift that, that occurred. I was just and, curious about the years there because some people listening in will go, okay, computer business, not realizing what really the eighties were for computers and the shifts and the change. I mean, that's when pretty much Apple and other places even came to be. In the early 80s, we did not have computers on our desk. By the end of the 80s, we all did. Yes. And back in the Stone Age, we'll, we'll go ahead and say back there, yeah, we didn't even have cell phones back then. <laughs> exactly. Back so where did that go from there then, Dennis? Where What was the transition yeah. after that? We sold that business, made a little bit of dough, and then right at the very beginning of uh, the dot-com era, I was, I had left the company that acquired the Genesis, which is the first startup after running sales for a while, put some time of the home, casting around, looking for the next thing and connected up with a, a guy that had some similar thoughts. And we launched uh, a company called Day.com, which was one of the very first web-based calendar and scheduling and, and so if you use Google Calendar today, it's essentially a knockoff of what we built back in or 1997, 1998, really early internet. And right a bunch of dough, got some great venture capitalists on board and key executives, and we built this thing and were able to sell it before the window collapsed at the end of the uh, dot-com era and uh, had a great experience there being a completely different model right? Where it's raise a bunch of money, spend it hard, fast, relatively fast as possible. Ended up selling it to a company called Palm. And you remember the Palm Pilot? They bought any day, worked at Palm for a while, spent a ton of time in Silicon Valley where they were based and watched that whole thing disintegrate, ended up becoming a disaster. And there's, I think books have been or will be written about what happened at Palm. But tremendous learning, right? Amazing learning watching what was happening inside of this newly public, fast-growing company in Silicon Valley at that time. I loved my Palm Pilot. Gosh, I was coming along in the late 80s, early 90s. I was doing leadership training and had our own business. And man, when that Palm came along, man, that was like the greatest thing ever. And boy, had they had their act together, they could have moved into what? jobs ended up doing, which is the, but, but then we could also talk Blackberry and other companies like that too, that had, they, there was a lot of them that had the opportunity, but I, I also think it's good to learn from what some would call failure. We talk about redefining success here. Give it, give a learning point or two. You mentioned books can be written, but give a learning point or two, not let's don't go back to the success, the two exits. Let's go to the what, sitting. Cause you obviously were part of the buyout at the other acquisition, they wanted you around and you had to be around when this was going on. What's something you took from that, that you kept using time and time again? I think that there were so many things that happened at Palm that were, were great lessons to be taken. So number one, Palm IPO'd in 2000, acquired eddyday.com right at the same time. And at the time, raised a billion dollars, you know, a billion dollars in the bank. 
uh, which was a massive IPO in the tech world in year 2000. They had a billion dollars in the bank. The first thing that the CEO did was go and drop 400 million of it on a new campus. So, so, you know, we're in this beautiful building in Santa Clara. It was fine. It was great. But we had to have the signature campus, right? That, that everybody in Silicon Valley, all the big players had a signature campus. We had to have one. So there it goes. More than half of the money is like out the door immediately. Not anticipating, maybe it'll be a time downturn at any point in time, play that little cushion. But so that was one, right? Like, my goodness, don't get caught up in all of the symbols of the best in, uh, but I think more, even more fundamentally, the management of Palm was not able to get out of its own way. There was too much kind of fighting about the goal of Palm and whether or not the existing world that was Palm, the developer community, the ecosystem around it could ever transition into something other than what it was, other than making incremental changes. They were afraid to kill the golden goose that they had with real innovation. And the original founders of Palm ended up getting out and started Handspring, which used the Palm operating system but turned it into a phone, right? But it was underfunded and it was, it was a bad time to be starting that they, and it was really that inability to make a top call on your core product and try to build something that would eventually make that thing die. That, that was Palm's real family as an organization and really taking that and absorbing that, that knowledge was so important for me. And so then I left. Palm ended up jumping into a Palm ecosystem startup that had had built some software in the Palm environment that was selling to big corporations, to, to the enterprise, selling mobile software for managing workforces that were out in the field doing work. And so the most painful lesson of my career came and as a result of this company, this is the one company that completely failed that I had started, or I didn't start, but I was CEO of this company failed, went out of business, everybody lost their money. And so I'm hired to come in, I'm coming from Palm. And so I know the environment, I know mobile computing, at, at least as it was at that time. And I worked with the CFO, we put together a, a business model that called for, we'll say $2 million of investment. It would take us out five years. And so I showed up at a great big venture firm. I, I had a deep relationship with a great success committee day in the back pocket. And I sat down in the conference room with an associate who said to me, Hey, Dennis, I, I looked at your deck, I looked at your presentation. You can walk out of here today with finance, except for one thing. We need you to not take $2 million. We need you to take $8 million. And because we don't want to write a small check. We want to write a big check. And if you can massage your numbers and make that work, you'll get a commitment today and you're done. You, you can get off the road. You can get back to work. You can get back to your heads down building this company. Young CEO, Dell guy by training, 
I'm sitting there talking through have a few minutes to make a decision. I said, yes. Close the deal, figure it out later. Get the deal done. So I took our spreadsheets and projections, changed everything to take $8 million to, to spend all of that, and then have sales numbers that are spiking quickly as a port to support this entire model, sold it, got the $8 million, and then the business was not ready to spend money that quickly by any means. Sales were not nearly enough to support the model that we had created. And so that, that decision to let easy money or let a financing strategy dictate my business strategy was the single most painful lesson that I'd learned along the way. Yeah. the And money, what a temptation too. What a, because isn't that, this is where we pick apart what success isn't more money always the answer. See, I'm disagreeing with myself right now. So you're really saying more money is not always the answer, right? It is not. It, it was not the right money for that business at that time. And this means, think about this. This is at the very beginning of the mobile computing market. And, and we had software that made it super easy to create mobile apps. How many mobile apps do we think of, can we think of now? There's untold millions of mobile apps. We had software that you could drag and drop and, and create a mobile app quickly and easily. It could work whether you had a cell phone connection or not a cell phone connection, like crazy. And, but it was early, right? And the, so the use cases were, they're not as broad early. And yet. I was tempted by that big number and by working with people that he was already pre-existing relationship with, and it was easy and well, we'd figure it out, we'd make it work. Now, really, when you take money, you are laying a foundation for your business. There are expectations around that money. There are legal responsibilities of people that are sitting on the board and those people have their own dynamics, their own drivers of behavior and outcomes that they're looking for. Is it, 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 it is so important to find the right financing for your business at the particular point in time that you are in, as opposed to allowing your thinking about the business to be structured by the capital that's easily available. Hey there. This is your host, Tim Winders, and I want to pause this interview for a minute and ask you a question. Are you feeling stuck? Maybe it's in your business, maybe it's in your leadership style, or maybe you just can't put your finger on it. Trust me, I've been there. I'm a faith-driven executive coach, and I can help you get unstuck. How? Well, I bring to the table not just over 30 years of experience, but also a unique blend of skills, like strategic thinking relationship building, and a dash of marketing wizardry. And if you are here, you know I'm not afraid to ask the tough questions. Don't believe I can help you grow? Just ask my clients that tripled their annual gross revenues in two years after coaching with me, or the clients that increased revenue 67% in just a year. So if you're ready to take the next step in your leadership journey, book a free discovery call with me at timwinders.com 
forward slash coaching. That's timwinders.com forward slash coaching. T-I-M-W-I-N-D-E-R-S.com forward slash coaching. Take a look at that page, scroll to the bottom, and you could book a time right on my calendar. Let's unlock your potential together. I look forward to speaking with you. Now, let's get back to Seek Go Create. Right. Hey, Dennis, at what point, and I don't think it was just now here on the podcast, at what point did you realize you may have made a mistake? And what did that do for you internally? What were you like going, uh, oh, what do we do now? Or did you realize that? Some, sometimes we have this optimism and really startup and business people really do. We sometimes are overly optimistic and think, okay, we could sell our way out of it or we can grind our way out of something like that. But at what point, there, there was a time that you went, uh-oh, when was that? And tell me more about that time. Yeah, so within six months, we had hired some really good people, really good salespeople, sales management, marketing people. And when it became clear that the pipeline was not developing as quickly as it would need to in order to support the revenue that we were expecting to come in the next year, it, it became clear that we had uh, uh, overextended ourselves. And, but at that point, I had sold this thing, I had bought into it. I brought all these people on board to support the vision and having that conversation at the board level about, Hey, this is not the short-term thing that no change the people, right? If the results aren't there, change the people, right? It, it didn't work. It, it was a fundamental issue, not a people issue. So it, it crept in fairly early and we did our best to make something of it, but ultimately it was a failure. And so stars and, and lessons, but, but you learn more from difficult times than from easy times, in my belief. So a quick recap, I love what you brought up with handspring. I, what I heard there was that they got to a point where they had something good, but they were protecting what they had instead of looking at new opportunities. And then I love the example that you just brought up. It's like more money is not always the answer. And it goes back to the conversation we had earlier, where it's okay, there's, I don't want to say there's strings attached, but there's stipulations when you do things like that. And, and that was a, a great lesson. All right. So now let's, we're getting closer to this business that you've got now, which is fascinating me. I look forward to it, but is there a step or two we're missing in between? Or are we getting close to getting this one started? We're getting close. I'll just quickly touch it. So from there, took some time off and then jumped into a, a retail startup, believe it or not. And so I've involved in building out retail stores in the mobile space. It's been living in mobile there for quite some time. I had a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, I had a partner. We built that company and we had about 50 stores in three states. Ended up selling that and had a nice outcome there. And then Back in 2013, I reconnected with this brilliant software architect who I had known through Any Day and some of the other subsequent startups. And he, it turns out he moved a couple of towns away and he said, Hey, 
uh, pick up this side gig I got going. I had, he had a, a business and he wanted to do a direct mail campaign to promote an event. So he was working on that direct mail campaign and saw, huh, there's not a lot of tools to help me capture interest with somebody respond. There's not an easy way to, to do that. And, and then talk to the printer and they're facing really old school. So he built some software that, that he could be a part of the direct mail process and surround it with landing pages and, and then email marketing and some other things. And he had some really customers and, and say, Hey, you got to take a look at it. So I thought at this point, 2013, like direct mail, uh, isn't that on the way out? And they did. And, but then you dig a little more and yeah, it's certainly not the primary step marketing channel for a lot of companies anymore, but it's still a $40 billion a year industry in the U S so great big old legacy marketing channel and nobody in Silicon Valley is paying any attention. So very underinvested in from a technology standpoint and sounds like an opportunity. And, and that's really what led to the launch of Boyne. Yeah. Let me pause you one second. I, I want to, you and I are of the generation where, when we start hearing a lot of things that are popular in the world today about being vulnerable and things like that, we are like, yeah, we don't like to share that, but I would like to know, is there anything you could share about your mental state going from the, what we'll call a failure, we'll call it a failure. I've really come to really say that they're learning experiences, but were you gun shy at all? Did you lose a little bit of your, as Austin Powers would say, any of your mojo? Were you wondering if you still had it? Talk to me a little bit about that. You don't have to, we don't have to have a therapy session here. I'm not saying we're going to go into, I don't have any tissues or anything, Dennis, but I, I do, because I realized I had to really do some reflection on I lost a little swagger, but I needed to lose a little bit, but I didn't need to lose it entirely. So what was going on with you mentally as you were going through that time off and then this next thing came along? I think there's, a, there's an important thing that happened in that failed startup as well. My wife and I had our second child. Our daughter was nine years old at that time. And is I'm hard charging trying to make this startup a success despite all the things that became apparent that it was not going to be successful. I was trying to prop it up, working my his tail off. And, and my daughter ended up with a massive infection in her brain and an abscess actually the size of a, like a, a golf ball on her brain. And we ended up spending nine nights at children's hospital in Boston with teams of different people coming in trying to figure out how to deal with this thing and how to solve it. And that made me step back and say, all right, Dennis, the heck are you doing here? Working in these 20 hour days, you got a young family, life is pressured and could be, can be short. And so that certainly impact has impacted my life over spread, but also at that particular point in time. I got this failed startup, I got this thing going on in my life. I fortunately had some success and had some money in my pocket. And so my next thing I thought, you know what? I'm done with tech for a while. I don't want to deal with tech. I want to do something out in the real world 
and just leave this environment for a while and the demands because in my mind, I only knew one way to work. And that was all in all day, every day. And so I did this other, the retail startup, which it didn't require nearly the energy and, and work. And I was able to spend time with my family and my kids through middle school, high school. And it was a wonderful experience. I learned a ton in the retail world. And it, that really set the stage for me to come back to tech and to say, you know what, I miss, I miss working with brilliant software engineers. And there's so many amazing people in the tech world that if I, if I structure this the way, the right way, I, I can have a little bit more balance between the old dentist and then a more uh, sustainable uh, way to think about a, a, a long-term growth model for a, a tech-based startup. Yeah, that's uh, that's that redefining success that we like to drill down on here. You're still, you know, you still have the skills and all that, but the mindset shift is different. And I do want to say this. We always look for little clips and sound bites to pull from this. We've got Dennis Kelly saying that the tech world is not the real world, that you're going to go work out in the real world on, on that little blip there. Hopefully we won't have to flip that out. So you were in this fake world. You went to the real world. And then you went back to the tech world. So we're where I really want to be because this is like a cool story. And I love the, the merging of this legacy business. What I would, I sometimes word it old school. I hope that's not a bad thing. Legacy sounds better. Direct mail. I've spent some time doing quite a bit of direct mail myself, but I love kind of the progression here. So bring us up to speed. Tell us what was going on there early on and then how that pivoted or transitioned or whatever went on there. Yeah. So my business partner started this little app called Boingnet that you could sell to people that, that are in the direct mail production world. So we're selling printers, selling the agencies and the software would surround a direct mail campaign with digital elements, landing pages, microsite, email marketing, text messaging, and hey, I'm helping people do the direct mail, but I can sell all these other things along with it. Right. We thought this is a no brainer, great way to bridge the direct mail world, bring it into the 21st century. And we built some great software. Sales were low, longer sales cycle than I guess what I had, we had anticipated required a lot of professional services and it was going okay. Uh, but it wasn't really matching our expectations or certainly the, the case of growth going on in the marketing tech world, right? And, and so after a couple of years and having gone through the experience before, we said, you know what, the fundamental problem, we're selling to the wrong people. We're trying to sell a tech solution to people that don't want to buy technology. And what we were able to learn though, is that by taking some of that software we built that analyzed who was going on a website in response to a direct mail campaign uh, and, and learning from the email marketing workflow, we thought, you know what, if we go stop, the bigger problem is that direct mail is too hard to do. The direct mail is not connected to the marketing tech stack. Uh, and we already have some analytics. So if we go solve these other problems and start going directly to marketing teams, a solution that will help them deploy direct mail in minutes instead of weeks. 
and make direct mail sit right alongside their email marketing and their digital marketing right inside of their CRM and marketing automation tool, and then have those detailed analytics about what's happening in a direct mail campaign that are new and unique, then that's a much bigger market. And, and so that really formed the basis of our pivot from Boynet to Postalytic in 2017. And then Postalytic has been a, a, a great growth story ever since, where we've been growing between 60 and 80% annually from year one. And one of the things that I, I think we have to do this for some folks that are listening in, there's a whole generation that they don't even know what we're talking about when we talk about direct mail. I just went, we had to go clean out. We had to go to Atlanta and clean out my mother-in-law's apartment. She was going into a facility and she had like two months of mail that was sitting there. And so I was, we're nomads, so I don't get a lot of mail anymore, which is fine. But it was so interesting for me to go through all the direct mail that she has received and she's made a couple purchases. So once that happens, there's triggers that come even more. And, and I do want to say this, that I, I love direct mail because that was what helped us launch when we were doing our real estate companies in the early 2000s. One of the first things that we did for growth was a cheesy, horrible, I'm almost embarrassed to say what they called a yellow letter that looked handwritten that I wish we could have automated at the time, but we had a team that wrote all the, you know, we copied and wrote out names and stuff. And we bought a boatload of single family homes from that. And I was involved with, I was involved with some masterminds that were transitioning from direct mail to electronic. I, I think the thing people do, Dennis, though, is they're always looking for the easy button. Yeah. And when email came along, everyone thought, oh, I could wash my hands of this and move along. But I always say that some things don't go away. We just build layers upon it. And it sounds like that's what y'all have done with Postalytics, correct? That is correct. Yes. Yes. That, so the, the, the reality is that it's a very effective marketing channel. And, and what Postalytics has done is built a lot of software around it to make it faster, easier, and really to work in conjunction with those other channels. And, and so that's really the message. It's not don't do email, don't do digital, just do direct mail. It's no, do all and, and direct mail should work together in concert with your other marketing channels so that you've got continuity. You have a physical touch, a physical presence that is backing up what people are seeing online and, and through their email and having a, a physical thing that you hold in your hand, that you read, that you set aside, that you show to somebody that adds a significant amount to the way your brain processes a marketing method, the way that your brain can uh, recall a brand, recall an offer. When you hold something, it is different than when you're just working at a screen. And, and so brain science is backing this up. And so really the story is direct mail should be in software. It should be living inside of software and it happens to print. And, and, and that software needs to be coordinating with all of your other marketing channels. And, and so that's really the primary story that we're selling today. Yeah. And I guess one of the things too, and maybe you can address this. One of the things that I used to struggle with direct mail was, you know, doing split test. I love doing split test. 
And I also loved getting information back so that I can make decisions. When email came along, I think people realized that it, it made that process quicker. It became a quicker process, but it sounds to me like what you've done is you've set some tools up that are merging those together. Would that be correct? That's right. So uh, we've created tools that enable a marketer to understand uh, exactly where their mail is in the creation and the delivery process by tapping into some little known tools that the U.S. Postal Service offers on the back end. We're actually able to track a piece of mail through the entire delivery process. And, and so we're able to see exactly where your mail is. And then we've embedded tools that came from the original BoyNet product that allow you to create unique URLs for each recipient. And those URLs may be printed as full URL, or they may be represented as QR code. And as we know, what happened with the use of QR codes since the pandemic, everything's exploded. And so that's become a very acceptable way for marketers to, to help people leap from the physical world to the digital world. And so now 70% of our campaigns have these personalized QR codes on them and people hit that QR code and all of a sudden, Hey, I know this is Tim Winders from this particular piece of mail from this campaign. and Here's when his mail is delivered. Here's where he hit the QR code. Here's where he went online. And then we're able to package all that up and communicate back to the CRM to say, hey, CRM, Tim is online right now. Here's what he's looking at. Here's how, where it came from. And uh, you may want to trigger an email to go out right away. Uh, you may want to trigger a sales or pick up the phone. So making that data surrounding the direct mail delivery and response shareable and, and able to easier analyze to see what's working from a testing standpoint has been a, a huge innovation. Yeah, that's good. I want to ask in just a moment about the type of people that are utilizing Postalytics and the type of people that should be, but there's one more decision type question I want to ask you that we went over fairly quickly, and that was the transition from the, the BoingNet to Postalytics. I think a lot of people need to have the awareness to make business pivots, decisions, and things like that. Because what you did, if I'm getting this correctly, you had a, a business, a tool that you had made some adjustments to the tool, but you were, you thought there was one customer group, people that did the printing and all that, I think is what I heard you say, mm -hmm. instead of the people that consumed the printing and used it. And I don't know that people really recognize what a big pivot that was. How hard was it to do that? Did you just wake up one morning and you talked to the partners and said, Hey, listen, we need to do this. What was just a little bit of that process? Because at some point you started getting some clues. It's not working. What do we do? You're hundred percent right. And so while we're struggling through, why isn't this taking off the way we thought we started actually hearing from potential customers of Postalytics knocking on our door and say, hey guys, you appear to be living in this space between digital and direct mail. We just implemented Salesforce. We want to try direct mail. It's just painful, right? It's it, the people that, that they didn't have the background in direct mail. They didn't know like what the whole process looked like. And that they're looking at me outside. Are you kidding me? Right? 
going to take all that to get a campaign out. And as so we heard this a few times, they're like, you know, we want to talk to HubSpot. We want to talk to Salesforce. We don't want it to be so hard to do. And that's really what gave us the confidence that, hey, if we shifted our ideal customer profile from this print service provider to the small to mid-sized business who is investing heavily in their marketing tech stack, then that is a group of people that A, are, have already shown they want to spend money on technology, right? B, they want to leverage the investment they've already made in their CRM. And then B, are running into the lower email open rates that everybody's seeing, the higher cost in, in all the auctions in the pay-per-click world, the cost of the acquisition in, in digital getting higher and higher. If this alternative can plug in and be easy to use, then we'll get a lot of those people. And that's, so we heard rumbling from the market. We did some testing and it became clear that this was really the problem to solve. What was the time frame from the, uh, oh, we've got a problem to we've turned this ship and we're now moving in this direction, all full steam ahead. What was the, giving me you know, months, years, days, minutes, how long, what was the time frame? It was really a four to six month process. We looked at a few different ways to take what we had already built and repackage it in 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 a smart way and expand the audience and 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 have a faster sales cycle. So we looked at two alternatives. Uh, within six months, we settled on this, and then it was about a nine month build process from there. So it it, it required sticking the fork in a previous effort. We had to lay some great people off, unfortunately to conserve cash and then rebuild and come back out as portfolio. Mm, the growth sounds awesome. And I, I love burgeoning. I love when someone can take a, what we'll call legacy, not an old school, but a legacy and bring it up to modern day, because I think that it's not nostalgia, but I just think there's still some things out there. I think I heard you talking to a guy that they do billboards. See, I worked in a billboard company when I was in high school. And people going billboards or radio or, oh, no, I only want to be on podcasts. No, I think sometimes the answer is and not or, you know, this and this. All right, Dennis, a couple quick questions here as we wrap. Give me, I'm not looking for specific businesses, but tell me the type industries that are really hitting some home runs with Postalytics that, you know, you could say these are some, and then I'm also going to ask you who should be looking at you that might be listening in, and then we'll do some wrap up here before we finish up. Sure. So at a high level, we look at Postalytics as, as really a horizontal software tool that could be used by every business in the world. And, and you can make an argument, anybody who's sending email, anybody who's doing email marketing should be doing direct mail to complement their email marketing. And, and I'll tell people, hey, think of us as sort of MailChimp or direct mail, right? Like just about anybody ought to be using this. That being said, there are certain verticals that have use cases that, that really need direct mail. And so obviously real estate on a very broad footprint of residential and commercial, the investment side, and then more recently, property tech, real estate tech is a booming business. And so direct mail is becoming a part of those solutions that are out there in the property tech world. And so 
that's been a big area for us. Another one is nonprofit, right? We're investing very heavily in the nonprofit space. Uh, 60% of all donations to U.S. nonprofits still happen by check. And that represents a tremendous opportunity for us. And then the other one that has really taken off in the last year is our agency channel. And so we built a version of Postalytics designed to be used by marketing agencies. And marketing agencies control a lot of direct mail you get at home, the postcards from the landscaper and restaurateur and those types of things are often being built by a local marketing agency that has a direct mail practice. And so we built a tool that empowers those agencies to be very efficient and to have an ability to scale their business without adding a lot of staff. And so some of those verticals are really areas of concentration, but we view the opportunity is very horizontal. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about somebody who owns a pizza restaurant, someone who owns a local business. I'm assuming that the way the pricing structures are, it still makes sense for them to do some work with you guys all the way up. I think y'all said small to medium. That's, I think they're so much opportunity. And I do think that if there's a business owner listening in, they've listened this far, I think they at least need to check it out if they've never done some things or they've done some things and they just didn't like the way it worked in direct mail. So where can people go if they're just intrigued, they want to get more information, they want to connect with you, they want to ask you more, whatever. Where do you want to send people? And then I've got one more question here that we'll wrap up with, Dennis. So where can people go if they just say, you know what, I need some more info? Sure, sure. So Probably two places. Uh, first would be our website, postalytics.com. And, and we invest very heavily in the website. Tons of great content, thought leadership, how to uh, do direct mail, how to do it with automation. Tremendous amount of content there uh, that we've developed. And so that's P-O-S-P-A-L-Y-P-I-P-S.com, postalytics.com. And then secondly is LinkedIn. Both the company, Postalytics, and myself, and and from other another channel standpoint, if you're a LinkedIn person, hook up with us there, follow the company, connect with me, and I'm, I'm super happy to interact and and, and work together with folks uh, through LinkedIn. Excellent. For those that are checking out the notes, we'll attempt to put those links down in the notes. So Dennis, man, I love this conversation. We are seek, go create. That's our title. I'm going to let you pick one of those words over the other two as my last question, and why seek, go, or create? Which one do you choose? I'm probably a create guy. I like to build businesses from scratch. I like to be involved in the very beginning of them. And so I think uh, that create is the word that resonates most with me. Yeah, excellent. Dennis Kelly, thank you. Postalytics, y'all go check them out. I think that's uh, valuable for a lot of leaders and business owners just to know more about direct mail. This conversation has been awesome. I've loved going from the transition and the, and all the evolution that I think Dennis has had. I think it's been valuable for us to listen and learn with that. We have new episodes here every Monday at Seek Go Create. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be. 